0: Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com.
1: Hey, good morning, Southbridge family. One more time, good morning. Great, great. You're a better-looking group than first hour, and uh, so give yourselves a hand for that. As we are continuing our timeless truth series, we're digging into the truths of God's Word. And as Pastor Scott and I were talking through our summer series just a little bit, we thought, man, it would be great to, to not only talk about the truths of the Word, but what about the Word itself? How reliable is God's Word? I don't know about you, but kind of through the years, sometimes I, I can just easily take it for granted. Uh, And yet, it is the foundation for life, right? Spiritual transformation leads to gospel saturation. So, we need to get into God's word. How reliable is God's word? And so, uh, we thought uh, one guy that would be great is our speaker this morning. I could tell you a lot of things about him, but just to help us understand how reliable. Okay. How reliable is the scripture, right, the the Bible that we pick up and dive into every day, every week, how reliable is that in terms of its life-changing power? Um, So our guest this morning that you've already heard from, um, (laughs) I could tell you a lot of things. I could tell you that he's spoken to more than 25 million people in 128 countries and he's authored more than 151 books. He could probably tell you a lot more about himself and have more fun with it, uh, but I'll let him do that. Uh, Two things that I I really know about this guy. One, he loves Jesus and is passionate about God's truth. Um, The second, I know that he loves Dottie so dearly, and uh, he loves his family. Uh, But Southbridge, I just want you to make uh, this guy feel very welcome. What a joy to have with us Mr. Josh McDowell.
0: You heard from him already. (laughs) I noticed in the first service, now the second service, uh, the main song or theme seems to be the goodness of God. Do you know how critical that is? I bet most of you don't. The number one question about truth, the number one apologetic question in the world, in almost every culture of the world, is this. Is God good? I never thought that would ever come to that. Is God good? Yeah, but let me tell you, you got to go far beyond that song if somebody asks you. Every one of you should develop an answer that makes sense, is intelligent, historically true, and biblically based. Is God good? I know God is good. Why? Because it says so in the Bible. (laughs) What a lame answer, (laughs) if you can't answer this next question. Well, how do you know the Bible's true? If God is good, I know that because it says so in the Bible. Well, how do you know the Bible is true? And that's what the overwhelming majority of Christians can't answer. One of the dumbest things you get, well, because I believe it. <laughs> when in the world do we ever think truth is based upon what we believe? It's not true because we believe it. We believe it because it is true. But how do we know it's true? Can you sit down with a staunch non-believer and intelligently answer that question? This morning will help. This morning will help. Uh, a lot of the background for this morning is I set out to write my first book, this big, huge thing here, against Christianity. Uh, I thought it was a joke. I thought most Christians had two brains. One was lost, the other was out looking for it. I think, no, I truly believed if a Christian had a brain had died in isolation. I'd met some. Even to this day, I meet Christians. Oh, they can tell me what I ought to believe about Jesus, the Bible, the resurrection. Oh, man, can they tell me. But I can hardly ever find a Christian and give me any intelligent reason why I should believe it. It just doesn't make sense to me uh, that somebody would believe something, give their life to it, not even know why intellectually they do it. Because God gave us a mind for that very purpose. And so much of my notes, what I'm going to be sharing here, all started out when I set out to write this book against Christianity and found out the joke was on me. Like so many people in the world so many Christians, I was ignorant of the facts. Uh, How do we know we can take, say, the New Testament, because I'm very limited on time here, can we take the New Testament, hold in our hand, and say, "Thus saith the Lord"? Intellectually, there's two questions I struggle with as a believer. Actually, three. I only have time to deal with one of them this morning. The first question was, "Can I hold the New Testament in hand and say what I have is what was written down, has not been changed? What people didn't like, they took out. What they did like, they added, and looked like a literary etzel." Some of you know what that means. But the second question is this. The first question is, do I have what was written down? The second question, was what was written down true? In this sense, it's true that Jesus did that, and it's true that Jesus said that. But there's a third question. First question is, do we have what was written down, or has it been changed? Second, was what written down true? In other words, did Jesus do then say that? But the third question is, was what Jesus said true? Wow, three profound questions that every Christian should be equipped to answer. We have time to touch on the first one. Is what we have today, go back to the first slide, Is what we have today the same thing that was written down 2,000 years ago? I'm going to be answering that. Now, the second question, I might have a little time to get into it, is what was written down true? The next slide. Is what was written down true? Now, when you check out any document of history, you apply what's called an historiography. Now, that's a big word with a little meaning. Historiography simply means the principles of determining authenticity. Any document, is it authentic? Was it written by who claimed to write it? Was it written when it's claimed to be written? And is it true what was written? Is it authentic? That's called historiography. Now, there's three usually three different tests to a good historiography. I deal with all of them in here. In fact, I think I have a chapter in each one of them. And I deal with them briefly in, I think, a very documented way in a little book called Morton the Carpenter. Uh, three tests. One is a bibliographical test. Ask questions about the manuscript. The internal evidence test. In other words, is the testimony internally co- consistent, cohesive? Third question is the external evidence test. In other words, under the document under consideration, is there external evidence written, oral testimony, etc exhibits, physical testimony, that confirms the inner testimony? Those three questions are of historiography. So if I get invited back two more times, the next time I'll speak in the second one, and the third time I'll speak in the third one, (laughs) or have my son do it if you bring him back. Uh, Isn't he good? Oh, my gosh. One of the greatest joys in life is to be the father of my son, and he's got three sisters just like him. I mean, I'm serious, cut of the same cloth. But um, so today we're gonna hone in on, is what we have today what was written down or has it been changed? Literature of antiquity was written on material that would perish. Probably Almost all of you have heard of ancient paper called papyrus. Papyrus, which is ancient paper, was created from the papyri reed grown in the shallow waters of the Nile. They would take these reeds and clip them right below the waterline, and then they would take, and they would crisscross the leaves. And once they completely had a sheet crisscrossed with this, They would take and press it down real hard, and what it would do, it would press the sap out of it, and the sap would act like a cement or a glue, and it would glue it all together from the strips. And it would come out looking like this, a piece of papyrus. Now, really excellent papyrus is almost transparent. You can almost literally see through it. And it's very tough. Uh, I often have a piece here, and I'll take it. You can snap it and snap it, and it usually won't break. Uh, it is so tough. They even made boats out of them called papyrus boats. And here's a picture of one. Um, and the reason they liked papyrus, it was so strong but so light. So they made boats that were really fast. This is why in Job it says, "It disappears like a swift papyrus boat, like an eagle swooping down." on its prey real fast, uh, and they were made out of papyrus, the same similar material that makes paper for writing of antiquity. Now, the bibliographical test, as I said, the first question he asked is the timeline. I'll have time to touch in two here. What is the timeline? Say, so what do you mean? From the original, which is called the autographer, what is the distance time-wise? I'll come back to that in a minute. Second question is, how many manuscripts do you have? That's a bibliographical test. And I'm going to try to answer those two. First, the timeline. Here you have the original. Go two up. Two more slides, please, They're right there. You have the original on the left. Now, they copy the original. Why? Well, for two reasons. One, they want to preserve it because the ink would fade, even though the ink was not made out of charcoal. The ink was made out of gall nuts. And a gall nut is where a, a wasp would lay its larvae on an oak tree in a crack around the bark, and the tree, being a living thing, would literally, can you imagine this? The tree would build an encasement around the larvae, and they would create little nuts called gall nuts. They have real sharp points on them. You put them in your hand and squeeze them, boy, you will bleed, real sharp points on them. And uh, that's what they made ancient ink out of, uh, because it was some of the best ink in the world that was found in the former larvae. And they would boil it in different uh, solutions and everything and make a very the most durable ink in history. And uh, so they would copy it because they wanted to preserve it, and they would copy it because maybe they needed three, four, five copies. So they'd make generation number one. And they'd have that copy. Go to the next slide, please. Now, with generation number one, it would start to fade away, and the ink would start to fade. And the material could start to turn to dust, according to the environment, whether extremely hot, dry, humid, or what. And so they would copy generation number two, and also because maybe now they need 50 copies for 50 churches. And they'd have generation number two. Then they'd copy generation number two. Why? They wanted to preserve it. Third, they needed maybe 200 copies ad infinitum. And that was the progression of copying down through um, the years. Now, the first test is from the original called the autographa. Autographa. The autographa is what's referred to as the original. And the closest copy. How, what is the distance? You see, the reason this is so important, the closer the copies to the original, the less chance of error or mistakes. Why would that be? Anyone, quickly. You all know the answer. Why would that be true? The closer to the original, the fewer mistakes and errors. Eyewitnesses. That's a great answer, but not the right one. But that's, a, that's as good as the right one for the next question. But anyway, eyewitness. What? Accuracy in what way? That's right. The more, the closer the copy of the original, the fewer copies have been made. You see that? So there's less chance of error and mistakes entering in. You got that, young man? But, hey, you really nailed it with your answer, O. Um, and I... I come to really appreciate the Bible, folks, when I would compare with other literature of history, the great writings of history, everything. Every time I've ever done that, which is probably 100 to 150 times, I walk away with greater confidence in the Scriptures. Let me show you why. Just time-wise, from when an author wrote to the closest copy, Pliny the Elder, 750 years, Caesar wrote the Gallic Wars, and the closest copy is 950 years after he wrote. Everything else has been lost or deteriorated or faded away. Plato, 1,300 years. Aristotle did um, the Poetics about 343, yeah, 343 B.C., and the closest copy, and I've never met a graduate professor teaching literature that knew this, the closest copy 1,100 years later, actually 1,400 years, 1,100 A.D. From the time Aristotle wrote, to the closest copies, a 1,400 years. Sophocles, 1,400 years. Euripides, 1,500 years. Catullus, 1,600 years. Here's a chart that will help you to picture it. On the left, on the time chart, is a New Testament the first copy within 50 years. Look at the others. There's no comparison. Time wise, there's more evidence for the New Testament than any 10 pieces of classical literature combined. Just time wise. I never knew that until I set out to refute it all, to make a joke of it. I found out the joke was on me. I was like a, non- a lot of non believers and a lot of Christians, ignorant of their very scripture, the construction of it, and how God preserved it down through the years. Less than 50 years when it comes to scripture. Now, the second test is the number of manuscripts. Here's the principle. The more copies you have, the easier it is to reconstruct the original, the autographer, and check out any errors or discrepancies. If you have, say, 5, 10, 15 copies, it's almost impossible to tell what was in the original. But if you have four or 500 copies, it's quite easy. There are certain principles you apply that you can pull out the original wording of the text. Well, here again, comparing the Scripture with other literature of antiquity, Now, I'm going to go through a good number here because I want to see the impact of the comparison. Caesar and the Gallic Wars, 251 manuscripts survive. Everything else has been lost or deteriorated and written 950 years after he wrote it, the closest copy. Plato, Tetralogies, 211 manuscripts. Tacitus, many people consider Tacitus the most accurate of Roman historians with his annals, 31 manuscripts in 1,000 years after he wrote them. Pliny the Elder, 200 manuscripts, Thucydides. Now, Thucydides is probably considered the the most accurate and the greatest of Greek historians. From the time he wrote to the closest copy, is 1,300 years, and there's only 96 manuscripts left in existence. Suetonius, 8, Herodotus, 109, Sophocles, 193, Lucretius, 2, Euripides, only 10, Demosthenes, 341, not bad. Aristophanes 13, Aristotle only 49 of his poetics. When it comes to the scriptures, I'm gonna wait a little bit to give you the comparison because I'd like to step in and share with you how many of these manuscripts, how many of them were discovered. It's quite unique how God preserved his scriptures down through the years, I mean, more so than anything else ever written in history. For example, many of scriptures were preserved in burial masks. You see, in the outer, larger cities of Egypt, they embalmed the bodies when they buried them. That's what we mainly know. In Egypt, they embalmed the bodies. But what most people don't realize, and I didn't for years, that in central Egypt, they didn't embalm the bodies. They ceremonially buried the bodies, and they would create out of papyrus a, a ceremonial mask to bury them with. For example, one of the masks that I have is this one here. It's a very rare one. The whole front part of the mass, turn to the front part. That front part is 14 karat leaf gold. So don't go chip. Well, I don't have it here, so you can't chip some off and take home. Uh, the top part, the green and the gold part on top, is silver and arsenic painting. So don't go licking it. Uh, it's got arsenic in it. Uh, silver and arsenic painting. Now, on the back of the thing, it tells what type of person used this mask. It's a pyramid with the sun coming down and touching the tip of it. That was the symbol of the God of the dead and the God of resurrection, Osiris. I guess that's how you pronounce it. And here's another picture depicting of Osiris, and this is a that's in, yeah, the Brooklyn Museum in New York is the head of the God. This is a head that was depicting the God Osiris. The face part is way down the bottom. You can hardly see the eyes and the nose figure. But that's how they pictured um, the God of the afterlife, death, and the resurrection. Now, in the mask that I have, um, when I had a big exhibit of the antiquities that I had in Dallas, there were some people there from uh, South Dakota, and uh, one was a professor at the School of Mines and Technology in South Dakota, and he said, could we borrow this mask? We'll be very careful with it, take it back and analyze it. Said, we have all types of 3D imaging everything. And I said, yes, if I get the originals. You can keep the copies, but I said, OK. So they took it back and 3D imaged it and all. Wow. In the front part of the mask, from here down, which is all papyrus, like paper mache together, there are 20-plus, I think 24, Greek manuscripts. Now, we don't know how many are the New Testament or what, but uh, I could probably say half of them are. Um, but, and then they were dated from the early Roman era from about 100 B.C. To A.D. 100. The mask is often dated between 100 to 300 B.C. That makes it about 2,300 years old. And embedded in it are manuscripts. And if we wanted to destroy we're not going to destroy the mask because it's so rare. Uh, and we want to hope to God it ends up in a museum where other people can appreciate it. But In there are manuscripts, and this is how they discovered many manuscripts. For example, here is a child's mask, and we were able to come by this, and we worked with some people. We were able to remove almost all the manuscripts out of it without destroying the mask. We went in with a process in the back and removed them, and we found three layers of manuscripts, and these are the three layers. Yeah. Now, none of them were Scripture. They're all tax records and like a, a community journal about the his, some of the history of the community. But this is where many manuscripts were discovered. Now, here's another mask that I was able to come by out of central Egypt. And there's 1,300 and some of these in existence. 1,150 are in Egypt, and the others are around the, the world. And so I felt comfortable. One, I owned it. And second, since there were so many more, that I felt comfortable destroying the mask, to pull out all the manuscripts within it. So we took the mask, and we soaked it in warm water for quite a while. And I had about 50 to 80 people there watching it, professors and pastors and others. And we soaked it in water, we massaged it, and just kept it in, and we used palm olive soap. And I've heard some scholars mock me, and they'll say, oh, yeah, now make sure you use palm olive soap, and then they'd laugh, showing their own dumb ignorance. Why do you only use palm olive soap? Very simple reason, because you're smart. <laughs> it's the only liquid soap that doesn't have a certain acid in it that would destroy the printing. And so you can use palm olive soap, and when you get through, you still got the printing. Where with other soaps, it would destroy the printing. And that's why smart people use palm olive, and dumb scholars don't even know why. You say, it's not nice to call them dumb, but they are, so I'm just <laughs> stating the obvious. But we, we took, that's all manuscripts. It looks like a cow's head with a skin torn off of it. It's all manuscripts. So we started pulling it apart with our fingers. And just go through this, all through here is just pulling it apart. And then we got to this one piece, go to the next one, no, the next one, yeah, right there. You see in my right hand is a pair of tweezers. I got down to this here, and they brought in some experts to help me to understand the process of what we're going through. And I said, well, I wanna take and see what I have here. And they said, well, you got several more layers. I said, no, I don't. I mean, it was razor thin. You lift up, you couldn't. And so the, this one professor from Europe picked it up, put it in the water, I said, don't do that. Started to massage it and everything. Pulled out, gave me a pair of tweezers. He said, now pull the several layers off of it. He was right. I peeled two layers. Now, what was interesting, the last layer, which I thank God he was standing there and showed my ignorance, was the earliest copy ever discovered of the Book of Romans by 50 years. Can you imagine the excitement of doing that? It only lasted for two weeks because, thank God, somebody else discovered one 40-some years older, which is why you do it. But at least for two weeks, I held the record. (laughs) And I have to admit, I was was kind of proud. No, I was very thankful for the experience of doing it. And you take the tweezers and you pull them apart. Now, when you get down, sometimes you get down on the last one. You can't read it. You can't see the letters, and so they got these cameras and go to one. See there, they put the camera on it where your your human eye cannot see it, and the camera will pull up where the stylus, two thousand years ago, touched the papyrus, and left a little indentation. After after they washed it off and they'd scrape it, it still left a little indentation, and the camera can bring that to light, and you can read it crystal clear. Isn't that amazing? Go to two more slides. There it is right there. See the blue? That you can't even see by the human eye, but the camera pulls it right out so you can read it. And then how do you date a manuscript? There's no one way you can date a manuscript and get much better than 40 to 50-year time period, which is very good, out of you know, several thousand years or 2,500 years. But one is the letter size and the form. You see, over the years, at different periods of time, they wrote the letters either a little larger, a little smaller, or used a little different form of doing, like an I or an N or an O, maybe a little curlicue in the O for a certain period of time and all. And that will help you to date it. And then the texture and the color of the parchment will help you. Please, the next manuscript. Now, you see the smudge up on top? That is from the thumb reaching over to turn the page and everything, to turn it back and turn to the other. You'd think they could just do it with the the, uh, corner margin there, but they didn't do it that way. Uh, But the texture and the color of the parchment at all you could date a manuscript within about 50 years. And then the original copies, the uh, autographer, was just straight lines of consonants, no word breaks, no vowels, no accentuation points, nothing, just solid lines of consonants. Now, if that was like that in English, most of us, we, it would take forever to get what the first word would be. Well, they were trained to read it like that in Hebrew, just solid consonants. and. So then, at different periods of time, they started to divide the ancient antiquities into chapters and, like, verses to help people to read it better and understand it in a smaller segment and context. But the way they divided the chapters would change. After a few years, they say, you know, this verse probably ought to be with that chapter. So they would extend the chapter one. And by how they divided the chapters into verses, you could date a manuscript. And then the punctuation. Through the years, at different periods of time, they had a different punctuation to help people to pronounce it. And they could study the punctuation and narrow it down to 40, 50 years. And then you ever picked up an old book, and you open it up, and the first letter is, is like a, a graphic design. Can you go to the next slide, please? A graphic design like that and uh, go through all the different graphic designs. They're amazing in uh, scrolls and old books, manuscripts, everything. And by studying these, you can pretty well determine, because at different periods of time, they design the graphic differently. And so by studying the graphic, like these here over years, you can, ha- I wanna take these, and I got others like them, and maybe cut off a little bit of the top and make note cards out of them about eight to ten different ones in a note card with the back, what they are and what they describe and why they did that kind of design and what Scripture it They're fascinating. Uh, But that's one way they determine the text. Now, look at this text here. Look how perfect it is. The right margin is perfect, and the left margin is perfect on each column. They wanted, they believe, if they created a perfect grid with every line absolutely straight, and what they would do, they would mark the lines. They put on this scroll here, you look at in the front right, if you got good eyes, you can see a little line of pinholes. And then if I turned it over and you saw the back of it, you could see on where I bent it over and then tied the strings through it. Well, I didn't, somebody else did. Uh, You can see little pinholes. So they would take a sheet, and they put pins down it, put string between the pins, straight line, and then they'd take a sharp bone, a jagged bone or a broken glass or something, and they would perfectly draw a straight line across a grid. Now, when you look at this, (laughs) so many people tell me, and they kind of puff up their chest legs, you know, find you making a mistake here, McDowell you rolled it out upside down. I said, no, that's Gentile ignorance. Why would you say that? To us, as Gentiles, it looks upside down. To a Jew, it's right side up. Say, how could that be? Just look at it. If we had a grid, we would place the letters on the line. And so the bottom part of the letter would be the straight part. The Jews didn't do that. They hung the letters from the line. So the straight part of a line was the top part, and the bottom was uneven. And so that's why it looks upside down when you look at it, because the letters are hung from the line. And when you look in the margins, and many of the margins you can see the light lines and how perfect they are. You can go from the bottom to the top. Everyone is exactly the same distance apart. And so they created perfect... (coughs) Uh, grids, and the color of the ink helped to, d- to determine the um, ancient, how old a manuscript was. And they not only had books and manuscripts, but they had what they called plates. Here's two of them here. They look like a billfold. One folded over and the other opened up. But they're plates made together of a number of layers of manuscripts, kind of like paper mache or something to hold them together. And, uh, and I think what held them together is when they pressed down on it, it pressed the sap out, which glued it. Um, and in these two, along with the other plate, plate A, look at all these things. These are manuscripts that came out. Look at all those. You see, a manuscript be, can be the size of your thumbnail. Any part of a manuscript is called a manuscript. I think Intellectually honest, you'd call it a fragment of a manuscript, but that's not what they do. Uh, any part of it's like any part of a year is considered 365 days on your taxes. If you have a loss one minute before midnight, you take that loss for 365 days and 365 nights, not just for one day, on your taxes. What's well, the same way here. Any part of a manuscript is a full manuscript. And so some of them are very tiny, as you see there. And um, in that segment B, the first, the top part, we undercover 12 papyri, four Greek, and eight Coptic. Now, what is a Coptic? Coptic language, and you heard of Coptic, the Coptic people, Coptic Egyptians, the Coptic language, was they took the ancient Egyptian language and they substituted each letter with a Greek letter. And then divided them into words and use the Greek pronunciation, so it's um, it's called Coptic, and uh, there were four Greek and eight Coptic manuscripts. Found the earliest Coptic of Mark fifteen nine, uh, and it shows it there, and then the earliest papyrus record of John fourteen twenty eight. Uh, To discover these things, it's just fascinating, and it's—I mean, you think something's exciting. You never know. It might take you one minute or one month to find something. Um, And the internet is preserved in Galatians 4.17. It even found—in one of the plates, we found the Gospel of Barnabas. Very very crystal clear. Go to the next slide. That's Barnabas. Very easy to read. Very small. But, see, these are very significant. If you just have one small part, it's not that significant. But if you have hundreds, like we have thousands of the New Testament, you put them together and you can reconstruct the originals going back 2,000 years almost from these little parts uh, that are very ancient but very small. Alone, they're not very significant. Together, they're very meaningful to scholarship. And then another place is in book bindings. Uh, This was a book that I had in my library and uh, the binding, the outside cover and the binding here made up of manuscripts. Isn't that amazing? So we took and put it into water, and you can see here some of the manuscripts that came out of that book. On the left is a whole row, which was the binding, and stuck down in the binding. Go then. Yeah, go to the next slide. Right there It looks like an island right there with a white square, that was discovered down in the binding, and it's the oldest ever discovered of the Republic by Plato. And it came out of an ancient book that I bought in some fair in in England, and it was stuffed down there when they did it to strengthen the binding uh, of the book. We have some of the coming out of these plants, some of the earliest Sermon on the Mounts and everything. And then there's this one piece. It's about as long as the width of your hand. Keep going. Right there. And it's about as wide as your thick as your small, not even quite as thick as your small finger, part of it. So it's about this long and that thick. But if you soaked it in water, it would come out like a fist like that, the size of... Of that because it's all manuscripts. Uh, And over the time, the loss of moisture and everything, they'd just been pressed down, pressed down to a small thing. We were going to soak this in water because it's all manuscripts and pretty well determined it'd be biblical manuscripts. And we didn't do it. Why? It's the only one. It's called a head roll. And it's, this was for a baby. They would take the baby's scripture, maybe they'd read to it, and a letter from grandma, or maybe a child getting older, their favorite poem, or something like that. They would, would uh, paper mache into a round called a neck roll. But it I always thought for years it was under the neck. They didn't. They just placed it within um, the, oh, come on, what do they bury him in? Yeah, those things. <laughs> yeah. But this one is the only one ever discovered. It has a cross on it, which has a circle around it, and it says, Abba, Father. So it was probably belonged to a monk who was referred to as a father, and it said, Abba, Father. And so we decided to keep it, and i hoping that this ends up in a museum. Oh, I, well, I own it, so I guess I have to say so on it. But we want all of this to end up. Uh, <laughs> people say, why don't you sell it? Because it's worth a lot of money. It is. But to me, it's worth more as a whole object in a museum where people can enjoy it like Dottie and I have over the years. And, uh, and then in 2008, in um, Albania, they discovered 47 manuscripts. 17 of them had not been seen for almost two years thousand years by human eyes, and this is where we get the additional number of manuscripts, and then there's what's called palimpsis. This is where like the Muslims would take Christian scripture, and they would wash it dry and scrape it, and then would use the papyrus to write down um, the Quran. So then you could take this and reverse the process wash it off, and then with the cameras, we'll pick up, even where they had scraped it off, the indentation, like I showed you before with that camera, and you can read the scriptures. And these are some of the oldest that you have, and to check out any errors, discrepancies, or anything. So how many manuscripts do we have? <laughs> I put it this way, it's almost embarrassing for a Christian. When I first came out with evidence that demands a verdict years ago, I was able to document, which became quoted by people all over the world because it was the only place it was all documented, 24,633 manuscripts of the New Testament. Now, it's not just in Greek. It could be in other languages, which is very valuable because you see the way they would translate it. You would get understanding of what that word really meant in the Greek to them back then, not to us now, when it was in different languages. And, but now, with a new edition, I've been able to document—this is so exciting, at least to me—over 66,000 manuscripts of the Bible, actually 66,462, I think, in detail. It's unheard of. Do you know how unique that is? Well, the number two book in all history in Manuscript Authority. Can anyone tell me what it is? The what? Where'd you learn that? I heard someone say it. Oh, you You're a good guy. Uh, I bet you even think you're smart, don't you? <laughs> you are. Um, the Iliad by Homer. 1,800 manuscripts. Now, think of this, folks. Look at the comparison. On the right is a number-two book in all history in manuscript authority, the Iliad, 1,800. On the left is number one, the Bible, over 66,000. I've never found a professor that teaches religion, Bible, or anything else in the university that knows this, unless they read evidence that demands a verdict. I wish every young person going off to any university, a Christian university, secular or what, knew some of these things about the Scriptures. They go in, these professors out of ignorance, make these statements, and the Christian kid feels so intimidated they don't say anything when all the evidence, almost all of it's on their side. Look at this in comparison. This was done digitally to do it. On the left is the average length of a classical literature stacked up. Look at that. I never grasped 66,000, verse 1,800, until I saw this. And that's why I did it so you could see it, too. Look at that. I never even dreamed. I couldn't even imagine that was possible. That's why I had to go over and over, and I just couldn't believe it. If it is possible, why hasn't people been talking about it? Some have, but they were just never heard. Um, but there's no comparison. In fact, we have 5,838 Greek New Testament manuscripts, which represents 2.6 million pages. Now, the last two blue lines is, a, well, the last three is a New Testament, the Old Testament, and combined, compared to classical literature where the arrow is. Go to the next slide yeah. I never knew that until I set out to refute it. And then you take this list here, and it's even bigger. This is all documented in here. Go to the next slide, please. These are historical figures that are mentioned in the book of Acts in the New Testament that have been documented in the Scriptures and completely documented in secular history on monuments and plaques of their time in their language by their people, and it's all identical. If you know anything about history, the chance of that happening with all the mistakes that are made historically is a miracle that that could happen. This is why Dr. Blakelock, who's a professor of classics at Auckland Universities in New Zealand, And said, Luke is a consummate historian to be ranked in his own right with the great writers of the Greek. And it just goes on and on about there's no comparison between the scriptures and any other literature of history. Dr. Scott Carroll, one of the top five people in the world of understanding scrolls and manuscripts and all, said, it is true that no biblical discovery has ever undermined our confidence in the scriptures. And Dr. Daniel Wallace at Dallas Seminary, I would rank him one of the top three or four Greek scholars in the world. He said, in the last 130 years, there has not been a single manuscript discovery that has produced a new reading, in other words, something different than what we have in the New Testament that scholars think is even close to being authentic. And went on to say, not a single manuscript in 130 years. You have what's called the Haftarah, very ancient. There's only a handful in the world, and by God's grace, I was able to find one. Uh, it takes me a long time to find all these, Into even a scroll like this, I can't afford a scroll like this. I have to find people around the world to have these things, and they don't realize what they really have and the value of them, and I don't feel led of the Holy Spirit to inform them. <laughs> and so I pay their price, and I'm sure they laugh all the way to the bank how they took that Christian to the launderer, <laughs> took all of his laundry money, everything, and I haven't stopped smiling for years because I have artifacts that I could never afford with my income, but I have them. And that's why sometimes it's tempting to sell them, too. <laughs> um, but in these ancient artifacts, we preserved the original writings. No other book in history can that be said of. Um, you take the Haftara. It has the Genesis and then the equal Scripture in Isaiah. But they go back so old, they're as valuable as the scrolls and everything for determining the accuracy of the text down through the years. And then there's what's called the Taj. Uh, go to the script of one, one book on top of another book. Right there. That is what's called the Taj. The top book, uh, and you go to the next slides with this, uh, Taj is called The Crown, and it's, it's a two-volume. The first volume is of Genesis to Exodus. The second volume is Leviticus through Deuteronomy. And the two together go back to almost the turn of the century. And What is neat about them, they have the scriptures in them, and they have commentaries written right in them, going back hundreds and hundreds of years, the oldest commentaries we have. And so because we have the scriptures and the commentaries of what those scriptures mean, oh, that's so valuable today for translating uh, into English, French, German, whatever, to find out what it means. And they would have repetition in three languages. The first language was Hebrew. All scripture has to be in Hebrew. But Hebrew is a very uh Hebrew is a very limited language. It, it doesn't you can't express detail very much with Hebrew. That's why in the Old Testament and everything, it's a lot of images, things like that, such as such as God compared to this, that, and all. Because it can't define but then there's Aramaic. Aramaic looks just like Hebrew, but it has a much broader, wider vocabulary. And with Aramaic, you can be more specific. And so the second line is in Aramaic. Uh, With the beginning, the first little white block on top is two little dots, means introducing a language. And then the second one introduces Aramaic. Now, the third one to the right there, now put that up there, introduces a very rare language, an old language, called uh, Judeo-Arabic, where they took the Arabic letters, substituted Greek letters for it, and broke them into words and gave the Greek pronunciation. It's called Judeo-Arabic, and it could be very, very specific. And so because of being the three languages, and you see how each translated the other, then when we go to translate, we can say, it has to, even though we think it might mean this, it has to mean this 2,000 years ago. And oh, does that help. And I'm so fortunate this is taken from one that I have. And uh, <laughs> my son said, Dad, what are you going to do with all this? Sell them? And I said, no, I want to put them in libraries. He said, well, why don't you will them to me? <laughs> yeah, then you could sell them. <laughs> <laughs> he said, no. I see the way people respond to this, especially young people. Dad, I want to use this to teach. I said, okay, we'll sign in blood that then you put them into libraries. And he said, okay, uh, that, so everybody can enjoy them. But here's one before you. And uh, go back to the second slide, and I'll wrap it up right here. Second slide at the beginning of the unrolled scripture. Psst. <laughs> it's very easy, go on. there we go. Now, can you blow that up? No. Starting on the right, you see that white blank line going across there? That's four blank lines, meaning it's the end of one book and the beginning of another book, and then do you see on the one, two, three, four, the fifth line over, it has a blank line going all the way across, one line. That's like a chapter title, and then you can see on the next column, Oh, oh, you see, a line that will start in on the third column from the right, it'll start in, and it's a blank, only a part way, and then text. That means a new thought. And then when you have the blank line in the center on, uh, next to the last column on the left there, you see that blank line almost in the center there, with text on both sides, that's like your Old Testament Psalms where you have the word sila, where you read reading, it'll say sila, which means stop, Meditate on this. This is so valuable. Meditate on it. So, built within the text, like right here is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight of them almost stacked right together there. And it says Sila, 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 Sila. New thought, new thought, new thought, Sila, Sila, Sila. Uh, chapter title, new thought. And so, I unrolled this sum. Please do not touch the text. Now, it actually helps the text. I believe the oil from your finger preserves the lettering, but the Jews would never touch the text out of reverence. And so I just felt I should carry on that tradition. It's okay to take to the margin to feel the texture of the calfskin skin that is written on and is sewn together with the muscles in the lower part of a calf's leg. Not a cowl, but a calf. And uh, the oldest part of it is this wood piece right here from Home Depot. Uh, LAUGHTER and you got a round oval there. You got one, two, three there and a couple more there. And that's where, uh, in stretching it, the weak part of the manuscript would open up into an oval-like. And then from the underneath, they would, if you could roll it, you could see how they would patch it and all. So that's what that. But you're welcome to come up and take pictures of it and everything. If you put it on your website or anything, tell where it came from, Lotz, the lots L-O-D-Z, the loats scroll. Uh, owned by Josh McDowell. The reason is, I need to protect its integrity. If you just put it up there, somebody else would take it, put their name on it, and then I lose the ability to use a lot of this. And so if you would do that, it would appreciate it. Okay, it's time in. One question. Why do you, why do you do this? What? Why'd do do why I do this? Make a lot of money. Because I, to, I do a whole seminar teaching with about 10 different types of artifacts, and it helps people to understand what God did historically to preserve the scriptures we have today. With what they've done here, I just feel I can hold the scriptures up intellectually and say, thus saith the Lord. Amen. It's not a blind faith, it's a very intelligent faith. Yeah. And then for people like you that know everything. <laughs> Oh, his wife goes, she does. Wow, that's quite a compliment, you and this guy over here. <laughs> he knows everything because he asks all the questions, the right questions. Folks, thank you. I'm going to turn it over to someone